my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Hello, my name is Eric, the host of our Black Gay Diaspora podcast. I am uh, excited to be here. Thank you, my guest in advance, for his patience today. I'm going to start with reading a brief intro on who I'm interviewing. One gift of this platform is discovering the stories and the contributions of guests like Dennis Carter. Dennis is a therapist, facilitator, and activist with over 25 years of developing and facilitating a diverse range of courses exploring themes around sexual and mental health, identity, equality, diversity, and inclusion. He's the founder and chair of Black Connection, a UK-wide social network for Black queer men over 50. Dennis is also an advisory board member for Ibanman, a publication showcasing the professional lifestyles of mature Black queer men within the business, travel, and arts, and entertainment, and a leadership team member of BAATN, which stands for the Black, African, and Asian Therapy Network. In 1990, he co-founded Let's Rap, a UK support group for Black queer men, and was facilitated with Big Up, another support group that merged with the organization Gay Men Fighting AIDS. Dennis has appeared in the 2021 Sky documentary series Positive and Black queer artist and filmmaker Topher Campbell's 2022 documentary titled Moments That Shape Queer Black Britain. Because I like the word, I'm going to use it. Dennis is a cornucopia of action, positivity, and light. And I thank him for welcoming me into his home. And I look forward to learning about more who, who he is and how he does what he does. Hey, Dennis, and welcome. How are you? Oh, thank you, Eric. Wow, what an introduction. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Really happy to be here. Happy to have you here. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for welcoming me to Brixton. This is my third time properly landing in this part of London. It's history that I know a little bit about, just based on the, the Black history in general of Brixton. But yeah, it's really great to be here. And I have to say, I like your tournament. Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> yeah, um, just to kind of settle us into the moment, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing really, really well. Um, I did, it's curious, you were saying that I do a lot of training around equality and diversity. I did a session for a voluntary organisation on Tuesday, and it went really, 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 really well. So I'm still buzzing a little bit from that. So yeah, I'm feeling good. Okay, what was the organisation? Merton Vision, which is a voluntary organisation that works with people who have got side problems. And you say you're still buzzing from there? Yeah, because it went really, really well. Yeah, and I'm doing it over two days, so I've got another day with them in the new year. I'm really looking forward to uh, finishing it up with them. Okay, is it your first time working with the organisation? Yes. And how did you become involved with it? I did a training session around HIV and AIDS. Oh gosh, this must be 15, maybe nearly 20 years ago. And I got talking to one of the participants, this black woman. Uh, She was also training to be a therapist at the time. And I think that was what the connection was. Um, We built a friendship following that. And she'd heard by one of her contacts that Merton Vision were looking for an equality and diversity trainer. And 
I know just what I know of your history that I would imagine that maybe a lot of what you do is because of previous work and possibly people that you know, the networking. I've been running equality and diversity courses for organizations. I think the very first one I ran was in 1989. Okay. I know I don't recall enough, but it's true. I always say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I've been running courses around equality and diversity for a whole range of different organizations, including government uh, departments, contraceptive mm-hmm. organizations, radio stations, etc. Over the last kind of 30 odd years or so. Okay. It's uh, my awareness of diversity training seems like a good chunk of it has come out in the last few years with the um, things like the Black Lives Matter movement and then this the public murder of George Floyd. But you've been doing this a lot longer than that. So Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because following the, the murder of George Floyd, mm-hmm. I think um, it's true to say that a lot of organizations and the leaders of those organizations lost their jobs because people look back at things they said in the past and mm-hmm. found that it wasn't appropriate today in this world. Mm-hmm. And I never forget saying 25 years ago on an equality university training course, mm-hmm. I said to them, if this organization is not addressing and taking equality and diversity seriously, mm-hmm. this organization will cease to exist in 20 years time and lo and behold the number of organizations that no longer exist because of their racism let's say and anti-blackness yeah you know i I predicted this 20 30 years ago so is it okay to ask what are your or what are the pros and cons of this kind of explosion because of something that had to be so tragic happening well i think um you know, often when I'm doing equality and diversity training, I'm doing it with mainstream white organizations. And in my experience, unless it's right up in front of their noses and their faces, they don't see it or they choose not to see it. And when we live in a city as diverse as London, there are over a million black people living in this city. And to believe that somehow that community doesn't exist or doesn't have any social capital, etc., etc., is foolish. And I think there's been a long history of social exclusion for mainstream organisations in this city. And I guess that's one of the things that motivates me to continue doing this work over these years because I've been excluded from organisations because of my skin colour. I experience racism on a regular, if not daily basis, you know, I can get on the Victoria Line at Brixton Station and I can be sat with a seat empty next to me mm-hmm. all the way to Euston Station during rush hour in a city that is supposed to be as diverse as London. How can that happen? And it's because of those experiences, because of the experiences I had as a child growing up in this country up north um, in the 60s and 70s. And also, you know, when I think back to the very first time I walked into my local library to try and find a book about what it meant to be gay. Mm-hmm. And all I could find were books that said I was sick, I was a paedophile, I had a mental health problem, it was a sin, that all I saw was negativity. And I 
never forget walking out of that library feeling, you know, completely lost. Didn't know what to do or where to turn. And, um, and I just remember thinking, you know, that's one of the things that, one of the reasons why I do the work, because I don't want another 16, 17-year-old to go through that experience that I went through. Fantastically enough, my local library, Brixton Library, you know, I can go in there today and I can pick up brother to brother mm. or I can pick up in the life. Mm. Those opportunities weren't available to me when I was uh, a teenager. For me, my work is about trying to make sure that other young people don't have to go through what I went through. Gay marriage in this country is what's been in place, what, 10 years? I mean, it blows my mind to think that it was the Tory party, you know, the Conservative party that brought in gay marriage. You know, and when you think about Thatcher, I was around during Thatcher's time, and, you know, she brought in the Section 28 piece of legislation, which stopped schools from talking openly about homosexuality in the classroom, for example, because she didn't believe in pretended family units, which is what she called gay relationships that had children. Yeah, and I think about what life was like back then in comparison to what it's like now. So, you know, it's fantastic that um, lesbians and gay men can go and get their relationships sanctified by marriage. When I think about my journey in terms of my identity as a black queer man, the word that gets missed a lot when black queer men are talked about in any way is this four-letter word, L-O-V-E, love. And it was love, it was the love of another man that brought my awareness of my sexuality, falling in love with another guy. But that word never gets talked about. It's very rare that I hear it. When, you know, for me and my journey, love has been at the foreground. Love of my community, love of myself, love of others, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I just wish that that word was used a lot more. Not just within our community, but in the, you know, in the communities worldwide, really. Um, because I think the world would be a lot better place if people really understood what that word meant and means. Thank you for that. I agree. I'm not like you. You're somebody who I believe is on the front lines, but me and my mind and my heart, I'm always challenged by the fact that whenever we're brought up, it's usually around sex, which is fine. That's totally okay. Yeah. But like you said, the love. Yeah, and that's often where the conversation focuses. It focuses on sex. And like you, you know, there's nothing wrong with sex. I think I've had plenty of it in my time. <laughs> and, you know, I think it's really important, especially as black queer men, that we are sex positive. We talk about the sex that we have positively because it's talked about so negatively outside of our world. I'm totally with you on that. Yeah, yeah. And it kind of ties in. Um, I had found that this past October... We took part in the Community Trauma Conference's uh, UK panel discussion titled Black Men and Sexuality, Meet Us at the Intersection of Race and Gender. Uh, can you share about that? Yeah, wow, what an amazing panel that was. And, you know, again, it kind of blows my mind in a lot of ways that a mainstream, black-centred, focused event centred the voices of black queer men. And as I hear myself say that, that's kind of mind-blowing when I think about this conference was focused on black men and how often has it been whenever there's a conversation about black men, black queer men get excluded from that. 
you know, one of the things I've always complained about for, for decades in terms of my experience of being black and queer is the idea that because I'm queer and because I'm black, somehow my blackness ticket has been rescinded. And that, you know, so, you know, of course, because I'm, I'm queer, I don't experience racism like other black men or I don't experience mental health issues like other black men, etc., etc., etc. And what I want the world to know is that uh, I'm holding on to my blackness ticket and nobody's taking it away from me. I have a right, just like any other black person in our community, to be seen and heard. What you just experienced with, with the uh, panel discussion, I'm not sure if that's been done on the same way in the US. Right. Yeah. It's quite a momentous moment if you think about this in terms of black queer history here in the UK. Yeah, because I don't remember in the past uh, black queer voices being centred in a way that this conference organised by black heterosexuals. And I know that the feedback that they received about that panel discussion was hugely positive. And I think there's also been a demand for more I support that because I think the black queer voice is too often it's been hidden and silenced in these discussions and uh, I think now this is 2023 and we're heading into 2024 those things should not be happening As a black queer man you know I came out in my late 20s and the late 90s to have known people about people like you I, I was starting to get you know a little bit of knowledge and then of course with the internet popping up then it, it, over time. But again, your, your history was what you've done, what you do that to me, and I'm not saying this just to say it, but it is revolutionary because as you mentioned, you know, I recently posted something that, you know, when myself as a black queer man go on to streaming platform, to your point, yeah, I can see myself as a, as a big character in a, in a performance, in a show, but to center us and especially around the love yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, and especially about the love, you know, because it's funny you say that. I remember when I was involved in Big Up, which was HIV organisation set up by and for black queer men mm-hmm. back in the 90s. And the, we did a piece of research, and the research was to look at all of the images of black queer men that we could find in the gay press over a four-week period. All we could find were kind of like four images. It was a naked black man with a big thing between his legs, a black man and a white man together looking lovingly into each other's eyes, a black man selling sex, and a black man wearing a dress, a wig, and high heels. And they were the only four images that we could find. And we never saw any images of black men loving black men. And I remember in the life Joseph Beam saying black men loving black men is a revolutionary act. To this day, 30 years later, since he wrote that book. Yeah, and so I've had a bit of a, a campaign to increase the visibility of black queer love, black queer couples. Mm-hmm. And that's why I love that Instagram account, uh, Black And I know that if I saw those images when I was in my teens, that would have made a massive difference to me 
in terms of what I could see for my future going forward. You know, I, I ran an event a year ago, about 18 months ago. It was a Black Queer Joy. It was a load of fun. It was fantastic. And one of the things about that event was that um, it was a very intergenerational event. There were a lot of older guys there, younger guys there. We all got on fantastically. And at the end of the evening, I will never forget, as long as I'm breathing, a young guy got up and said, thank you so much for putting this event on because this is the first time in my gay life where I have seen black queer men with grey hair. I didn't know until this evening that you all existed. And thank you so much for showing me that you exist because now I know that I have a future and I can be just as fabulous as all of you are. So that speaks to the invisibility of black queer men, not just in society as a whole, but in our, even within our own communities. And I guess, as I hear myself say that, I've got to do something about it. You know, and I guess participating in this interview is part of that, to show that you know, there was a life before the 2000s for black queer men. I want to bring up a mission statement that is said, uh, I'll just uh, quote it here, provide a range of safe social spaces since we're talking about age. And uh, I don't know, well, that, that's me self-judging. <laughs> Let me read the quote first, or the statement. Provide a range of safe social spaces, events, culturally appropriate information, develop activities that improve self-esteem, confidence, and community, end quote. And this is on Black Connection. Mm-hmm. Since we're talking about that part of the gift of, of life, can you share about the organization? Wow, Black Connection. Well, Black Connection came about on the first day of lockdown. I sat on this couch, this very couch, and I was thinking, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? If we're all locked down, how am I going to be able to stay in touch with my community and my friends and all that kind of stuff? And then I thought to myself, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll set up a WhatsApp group. And I'll just do invite a few people. I won't get more than 10, 15 people is what I thought. Mm-hmm. And by, I don't know, in the space of three or four weeks, there were over 50 members in the group. And that's when I thought, oh, uh, there's a lot more of us out there than I would imagine. Because I think in my head, you know, I remember a lot of my generation died during the HIV epidemic. So um, there are not that many of us around today when mm-hmm. I think back to what we back in the day. And, you know, we were talking earlier before the interview about the lack of kind of social spaces just for the black queer community generally. But I think if you're over 50, they're non-existent. And I think one of the main kind of things that I know I've experienced as I've aged is this thing around isolation. Because those spaces don't exist, it's very difficult to maintain a kind of social network when there are very few spaces for us to meet and you know, develop those networks. So for me, it's been a really interesting journey um, setting up Black Connection. And I think one of the things that's been really highlighted for me is this question of isolation within our community. And I think that isolation is connected also to what we were talking about earlier in terms of invisibility 
I think there's a relationship between the two. Yeah, because it's just you sharing about that. Thank you. Um, I was back in the States last year visiting my aunt and her um, male partner. And I remember the time I was there, like, he was in his late 70s. There were events for him to do as a straight man, going just to shoot the breeze with people. But I never thought about the importance of that for, for us as black queer men. Exactly. I'm imagining, this is what I imagine in my head, that if I was to use older person's services for black people, I'm imagining that if I was out in that space, I would experience some form of homophobia. And just the thought of that says, I'm not going to go there. So there's another avenue cut off. Do you know what I mean? Because I know from my own past experience, those are the spaces where I do experience homophobia. And at this stage of my life, it's not something that I want to kind of put myself in if I can, if I can help it. You know, I've had people, family members, or just friends in general, who say, oh, you should come to this event. And I know it's coming from a place of love. How do I maybe ask you that? How do I start that conversation of, well, sure. For black people, however, mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting because for a long time, for most of my adult life, I would say I have avoided. I have to be honest, I have avoided spaces where there were large numbers of black heterosexual people. And I got to my uh, late fifties, and I thought, you know what? Maybe I should try. Let me try. Let me see if it's changed. Someone joined a black men's walking group. A lot of the guys in that group, really cool, really nice guys, but there were a few guys in there who were not so cool, or not so nice, and were homophobic. Let's just call it out, let's call it what it is. And I just thought to myself, well, after attending about three or four sessions, you know, I just thought, you know what, this is not the space for me. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it was James Baldwin. I could be wrong, but uh, you know, if it doesn't exist, create it. And so I'm thinking next year actually to kind of think about setting up a walking group for black queer men, where we can be ourselves. I mean, that was the thing about that black men's group. I didn't feel able to fully be myself. And yes, one could argue that I might put that self restriction on myself. Maybe, but no, I know that if I was my true... In fact, I remember I said, I said in front of them all that I love sucking cock. And the look and the shot on their faces and, and the group kept on talking about that for weeks. How could you say such a thing? What do you mean, how could I say such a thing? It's true. <laughs> and, and it's those kind of nuances you know, that make a real difference to my experience of being in the company of other black straight men. That must be real. And I don't, and this is my opinion, but I don't think it's the topic of sex because, say, in a black barbershop mm-hmm. or another space, sex is being talked about. We know that. You know, I mean, it's also important to say not all black straight men are homophobic. Far from it, in fact. You know, you know when I think about that in relationship to my family, Jamaican, Jamaican origin, you know, 
I haven't experienced any homophobia within my family. In Jamaica, you know, it has a long history of homophobia. But within my own particular family, and I know that that love that I received from my family as a black queer man has made a real difference to my journey. And I know that there are lots of other black queer men of Jamaican heritage who can't say that. And so that tells me, you know, something about the kind of stereotype that exists around black communities and, and, and homophobia. Yes, I know I've talked about it a bit here, but I really don't want to give the impression that somehow black people are more homophobic than any other group or race of people, because I don't think that's true. And thank you for that, yeah, because I would say honestly that the majority of the people that I've interviewed so far similar stories, similar to uh, homophobia and the general population that exists in black communities. But yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. And I think as well, I think it's important to say homophobia, if I experience homophobia from a European person, let's, I'll put it that way, it kind of just goes over my head. But when it's, I experience it from a black person, it cuts when they've got the same skin colour as me. You know, especially when I think about our history and then of discrimination, racism, anti-blackness, and then you're going to discriminate against me as another black person because of my sexuality. You know, it's like something not right about this picture. With black connection, you said it started online. So do you meet in person? Yeah, so we've we've met in person, yes. We've had picnics, we've had social evenings. In fact, we did a a walk. Uh, We've done bike rides. Yeah, a whole range of different things. Okay. Outside of the online space. And is it just in London? Yeah. Okay. But the members from all over the UK, including uh, Ireland. Oh, okay. So there's a possibility of it expanding and growing? Yes, I mean, I think now we've got close to 90 members in the group. Yeah, there's, there's, a, whole, there's a whole range of potential, I think, that the group has. Yeah. Yeah. I, for myself, I've started to use this word within my own internal dialogue so I can check myself as um, internalized ageism. So again, I'm just really grateful to hear about organizations like Black Connection and for myself to start looking for them for myself. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But to uh, talk about, you know, you talked about coming from a Jamaican background and like I said, I knew about you from the very beginning, two and a half years ago when I started this platform. I, I was being told about you. If you could pinpoint for yourself and your journey, mm-hmm. where do you think some of your passion comes from as far as for activism and for positive change? Hmm. Where does it come from? That's a good question, Eric. I think, well, I, I guess a lot of it comes from my childhood experiences of racism, number one. And I guess it also comes from my kind of teenage experiences of homophobia. And then one day, I used to swim at Brixton Recreation Centre every day. Um, And and then one day I walked into the Brixton Recreation Centre and there was a poster on reception saying, homosexuality and the black communities, public discussion. I thought, wow, wow, yeah, oh, oh, this this looks interesting. 
And then on the day that it happened, I never forget, you used to have to pay 20 pence to get entry into the Brixton Recreation Centre back then. And because I used to go every day, the receptionist knew me. I remember thinking, oh my God, if I give my 20 pence, she's going to know, because I wasn't going swimming, that I'm going to this um, event. And I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do? Do I, do I run or do I stay? And I thought, I'm not going up. I'm giving them my 20 pence. I gave them my 20 pence, you know. I'm so glad I did that. Because I, th- I think if I'd have ran, I'd have probably still be running now in a lot of ways. Anyway, I went into this uh, meeting, and as you can imagine, it was quite heated, and, you know, but it was, it was a very exciting uh, meeting, I remember. And one of the staff was organised by uh, BLGC, the Black Lesbian and Gay Centre Project. And one of the staff, Robert, came up to me and said, oh, we got talking, and he says, oh, we're having another meeting uh, in a couple of weeks' time, would you like to come? I said, yeah, 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 if it's anything like this, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. So off I go, I go to this meeting, and it wasn't a public discussion about homophobia. It was the annual general meeting of the Black Lives Gay Centre Project. And by the end of the evening, I got elected as the treasurer of BLGC. I didn't even know what a treasurer was. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what minutes were, didn't know what a chair was, you know, I mean, I had no idea, no clue, but I quickly picked it up, I have to say. And then the following year, I got elected as chair. And I was chair for about five years. I guess it was that baptism of fire joining BLGC in some ways. That's where I developed the passion that I have today. Around it. it started there at BLGC. Okay. You mentioned Big Up. Were you part of that from the ground up? Pretty much, I think, yeah, in the early days, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been involved in most black queer uh, organisations over the last 30 years, in some way or another. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was the chair of the Black Gay Men's Advisory Group. I was also the chair of Stonewall Housing Association for five years. Um, one of the reasons why I did that was because um, it was an organisation set up to provide temporary accommodation to young people up to the age of 25 who'd been kicked out of the family home because of their sexuality. And every year we used to do uh, ethnic monitoring of the residents. And every year, for that five years that I was there, the majority of residents were black. And it used to break my heart that these black families were kicking out their children on the streets because of their sexuality. Mm. You know, and every time I remember that, (laughs) that, again, is something that drives me forward. Mm. Because those kids, they need help and support. They're vulnerable. Mm. And I think it was those um, experiences in my 20s and 30s of being involved in those organisations that keeps uh, the drive alive today, I think. You're also a therapist. Yes. You said you discovered the activism part of it mm-hmm. quite young in your teen years. Yeah. Did you train early on as a therapist? No, 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 no. I, I started training as a therapist about 15, 17 years ago. Um, well, there's two reasons why I did it, really or three, I think I'd always kind of had an interest in in kind of that. Mm. 
because I remember I did a counselling course years ago, years and years ago, but I didn't finish it because I didn't think the, the tutor was very good. <laughs> yeah. Um, As Jim Paul would say, creative. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then I worked at Pace, uh, which was an LGBT mental health charity. And I was uh, responsible for running workshops, personal development workshops for uh, queer men. Mm-hmm. And I set up uh, a support group for black queer men, black and Asian queer men, yeah. There were two guys that I worked with, these two therapists, and I'd watched them work, and I was just blown away by the things that they were able to do. And I thought to myself, well, if I want to be as good as them, <laughs> I've got to do some training. Yeah. So, and that's why I got into it. And then I guess the third reason was that I've been doing a lot of activism, but you know, it, must be, it must have been 20 years by that time. And it was very much focused on the community as a whole. And I just thought, you know what, but I think, you know, it, I was meeting people who were struggling and I just thought, well, I need to focus more on the individual and help them. Because I felt I could offer something um, based on my own experience in a lot of ways. And um, so anyway, yeah. So there were the kind of three reasons why I uh, decided to do training as a therapist. I mean, I have to say that I, I only maintain a very small one-to-one practice. Uh, because over the years, I decided that where I wanted to put my efforts was more into group work and working with groups. Mm-hmm. Because of my experience of doing um, training, uh, quality university training, I picked up a lot of skills from that about working with groups and how to do it. And uh, yeah, so that's what I do. I tend to work with groups more than I do uh, one-to-one therapeutically. Now, would that be connected to the Black and African, Black African and Asian Therapy Network? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. B-A-A-T. Yeah, yeah, that's how I got involved in, in Barton. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mentioned in the intro about how I've seen you in documentaries. One of them that I was fortunate, I don't think I saw it when it was uh, debuted, but I definitely saw it last year, a few months afterwards, was the um, Black Queer Britain. And yeah, you were one of the ones profiled in it. And I love that you shared, like, for this recording, even the first time we connected, you share history. And, and I love that. But you also, like we mentioned earlier, share the joys. But just to ask you, how was it being part of that project? Yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, it's interesting hearing you say about joy. Mm-hmm. And because for me, you know, often when these conversations about uh, black queer men, it's all about, you know, the racism, the homophobia, blah, 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 and social exclusion, blah, 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 very victim, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, uh, one of the things I know about my journey over the last kind of 40 years is that I have had a ton of joy in that time. I've also had a lot of sex, but let's not talk about that right now. <laughs> this is eight, it's not that. Yeah, but I have. And, um, you know, which I think, again, is part of the joy of being black and queer in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have had a lot of joy in my life. 
guess for me, it's important to celebrate that. It's important to, uh, and it's also important to try and create spaces where other black women can experience joy. Okay. Yeah, because I remember you talk about spaces. I had never heard the word before, but Shabin was one of the ones that came up a couple times. What is or what is or was a Shabin? Well, the Shabin was a, a, a place where people could, would gather, black people normally would gather and party, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it would probably be done under the radar, so to speak because I think a lot of those spaces didn't have alcohol licenses and things like that. I mean, there was a black queer space that just around the corner way back in the day, uh, run by a woman called Pearl Alcock. But for me, what I remember back in the 80s was more the idea of house parties. You know, I can remember back in the 80s, Every weekend there was a black gay party that you could go to. Mm-hmm. And once you went to one black gay party, you were plugged into the black queer community in London, mm-hmm. really. Practically every weekend there would always be somewhere to go and hang out. And, and I miss those days, <laughs> they do, mm-hmm. you know. Um, because it was a lot of fun, it was a great way of meeting people and building community. Um, so, Shabine House Parties, was there any affiliation with the, like the sound systems? Not the major sound systems that I remember, although there was a sound system, and I'm trying to remember the name, that used to play at Carnival every year. Was it Shaking Finger Pop? I love that. Shaking, <laughs> Shaking Finger Pop. Uh, there were a lot of black queer men. In fact, if I think about it, I think, actually, yeah, the guy that used to run it, his brother was a well-known black queer DJ that used to play in the black queer clubs back in the day. Okay. Yeah, and, and it, but it was his brother who had the main sound system and, and yeah, so we always used to go down at Carnival. Mm. It was shaking finger pop. I could be wrong, but You've talked about, um, off mic, about your travels uh, connected to advocacy, I believe some of it going to countries like Ghana, other African countries, also the United States. But for you, what is it like visiting these places and bringing your professional experience uh, to the I mean, when I was telling you earlier about uh, visiting America a lot in the 80s, I think the first time I went there was 1988. Yeah, and I traveled a lot there through the 90s and early 2000s, yeah. I used to attend the, what was it called? The Black Lisbon and Gay Leadership Forum Conference in LA. Mm Now, it's interesting you say me going out to these places and sharing my stuff, but it was more the other way around. I was picking up stuff and being inspired by the things I saw on my travels. And I never forget going to the Leadership Forum Conference and there was a workshop specifically for black men, black queer men. Mm -hmm. And I went to that workshop I can't even remember what was talked about. 
the thing I do remember is thinking, wow, this is fantastic. I've got to do something like this when I get back to London. Mm-hmm. And that's when Let's Rap. Okay. That's how that came about, because mm-hmm. I was inspired by that, you know, that trip I made to the conference. And Let's Rap also was at the early 90s. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very early. I think it was, in fact, it was set up the 1st of April, the very first meeting was the 1st of April, 1990. Yeah. And how long did that group uh, I think we ran that group for about four years, maybe three, four years, something like that. And that came out of BLGC, because BLGC received, I'll never forget, received £500 of funding from somewhere, I can't remember where it came from, but we got £500 and we thought, right, what are we going to do with this £500? So we thought, right, okay, we'll split it down the middle, so £250 for the women and £250 for the men. And they thought, right, what are we going to do with that? And they thought, right, okay, I thought, why don't we, because I've been to this conference, why don't we do some workshops for black women? And so, and that's how it came about. I've described you as an encyclopedia, <laughs> uh, and I think I said it to you the first time we spoke a couple of months ago that the way you speak, I can see it. So, um, yeah, I definitely see your story, us benefiting from your story, being in a book, or, you know, grander scale, like well, a documentary. Curiously, you should mention that, um, because there is a book coming out by uh, Jason, I always forget his surname, but Jason, mm-hmm. who's a, he writes for The Guardian, and he's writing a book about uh, five black queer men who live in Brixton, <clears throat> and I'm one of those. Uh, yeah. Do you know when it'll be available? Uh, it's coming out very soon, um, within the next kind of couple of months. Oh, okay, well, okay, I'll definitely look out for it. So you, when you're not galvanizing, when you're not inspiring, what do you do to relax? Before lockdown, I had six houseplants, tropical houseplants. Mm-hmm. But since lockdown has ended, I now have about 70 of them dotted around all over the place. And they take up some time to look after and care for. So I find it really therapeutic and uh, relaxing. And then and then they always put a huge smile on my face when I see a new leaf or a new flower. And, and most of them have just grown so much and done really, really well. And uh, well, I also try and keep fit. Um, I go to the gym, although I haven't been for a while, but do do that I think one thing I do is I try and maintain my social network you know in terms of my friends and so I do make some efforts to stay in touch and all that kind of stuff okay yeah I'm about energy and I can say just as a visitor in your home it feels I felt completely comfortable here so maybe tying into that you know how you maybe encourage people to just be yourself. Yeah. yeah. Very, very important. And, and I guess the reason why I say it's so important is because it took me quite a while to realize that actually it's all right being me. Mm. The more of myself that I can 
be, actually, other things happen as a result. Mm, I like that. Whereas if I'm shrinking all the time, or if I'm hiding, or if I'm avoiding, or all those kinds of things, I, I, I guess I, if maintaining a life like that stops me from opportunities and doors that might be open for me. Yeah. I'll have to, when I do the editing, <laughs> that little splice for myself. <laughs> Well, I thank you so much, first of all, for inviting me to your home, for taking time out to um, to speak with me. Again, I'm just really honored that you allowed me to, to ask you some questions, to find out more about you, what you do. And like I said, everyone that I spoke to when I first started to interview people from the UK, like you got to talk to Dennis. So, yeah, thank you so much. Oh, no, it's been my absolute pleasure, Eric, and thank you so much for inviting me uh, this great opportunity. Yeah, of course, of course. And uh, I always end with, do you have any final thoughts or insights? Just following on from where we ended, you know, this idea about being yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I think, you know, being black and queer is hard to be yourself when all around you is against you in some way. However, <laughs> I do believe Putting in the effort to make it real is really worth it. And I think the day that I realised that actually this, people, for the most part, when you're being you, don't have a problem with that. Mm. Once I realised that, I think my world changed for the better. Yeah, And it gave me, I think, more than anything, as Obama says in his book, the most important lesson that he's going to give his two girls is confidence. Owning who I am and being, and being okay with that and, and not being afraid of letting others see who I am requires some confidence. And I think that confidence has paid off in leaps and bounds. And so anything we can do as a community to be more confident about who we are and letting the world know who we are can only be a good thing because I know it worked for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. And where can we find you online? You can find me on Instagram if you're interested, um, Dennis L. Carney. Yeah. Cool. I'll make sure to share that. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you again. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends, too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.